Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Quick note before we begin, we just could really use your support and we make it really easy for you to give it to us. Uh, Five bucks a month Canadian. When you click on the link in your show notes, if you're listening on a smartphone or just go to canadalandshow.com slash join, you can sign up there. It just takes a second and bloop, you get like a little premium podcast feed right away. It's kind of neat. Or you could just send us support at support at canadalandshow.com. Thanks very much. Christopher Curtis, reporter for the Montreal Gazette, joining me from, duh, Montreal. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me, man. Chris, today we're going to talk about a painting of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on all fours with his pants down. It has been deemed offensive, but not to Justin Trudeau. We're going to talk about Anglos. They are more afraid of the coronavirus than Francophones. I, for one, blame the media. Finally, we're going to talk about the curious case of the disappearing CBC article about what's happening in Gaza. Glad to have you with us once again. Well, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate that. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to everybody by Stephen McCauley, Joe Young, Ross Ramage, Ian Myra, Ashley Chalinor, Wayne Antony, Antonio Rodas, and Austin Shepard. 
my name is Austin Shepard. I'm a 25-year-old, originally from Norfolk County, Ontario. I choose to support Candleland thanks to their amazing journalistic stories and as well as their investigative abilities. Thank you for being the voice of so many Canadians. Thank you for being my voice. Chris, are you a fan of the painter Kent Monkman? I don't know how to answer that question right now. <laughs> how would you have answered it a week ago before this controversy? <laughs> I think great art is supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. And especially if you are a part of the settler state, especially if you're a white dude, which I am, and I am. So I find his work depicting children being removed uh, from their families by the RCMP to be uh, really provocative and beautifully, beautifully uh, painted. But uh, obviously, things are you know always a little more complicated than I would have them. I would sort of sort of believe that they are. Okay, so this painting, which is titled "Hanky Panky." Here's how the Globe and Mail described it. The Globe and Mail, who actually uh, consented to the artist's request that they not include a picture of the painting. You can see the painting because the artist still has it up on his own social media for some reason. And uh, La Presse also included the painting in their article about this. But here's how the Globe described it. And, uh, you know, trigger warning. This does describe a depiction of sexual assault. Here's the description. The painting depicts a council of women, inspired, Monkman said in his artist statement, by the traditional council of female Cree lawkeepers who held authority over matters relating to the land. The women are gawking and laughing at the sight of a panicked-looking man who bears a striking resemblance to Trudeau. It doesn't... Okay, I, I have to interject. It's not somebody who bears a striking resemblance to Trudeau. It's Trudeau. It's Trudeau uh, on all fours. He's got the brightly colored socks. The face is no one but Justin Trudeau. And, um, you know, his pants are down and somebody's kind of clasping his butt. Um, back to the globe. On all fours with his pants at his ankles being forcefully held down by a woman with a ferocious expression. Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, Monkman's two-spirited alter ego, towers over the man on the ground, holding up a sculpture of red hands. A mounty is sprawled, face down in front with his pants lowered. Watching the scene is a group of anguished-looking men who resemble former prime ministers, among them Stephen Harper and Sir John A. MacDonald. Okay, I, you know, I think that just to hear it described so plainly like that, uh, it's, it sounds pretty horrific. And to contrast that with what the image actually looks like, or at least how it occurred to me or how it appeared to me, I don't think you would know from that description. It's like a carnivalesque, like it's farcical, like it's a picture, like it's broad comedy to see this thing. You know, you've got Stephen Harper and Johnny McDonald clutching each other like they're next. And Trudeau has got this kind of comical look of uh, of terror in his face and everyone's laughing. And it's just like bright colors. And I, like, I don't know. I'm sure that people find this offensive. I know that people find it very offensive, uh, but I think it's intended. And I, I took it as like a pretty funny image. This inspired condemnation and controversy. But it was interesting to me. It was not people who were standing up for Justin Trudeau. How dare you disrespect the prime minister by depicting him in this apparent act of, of sexual assault or Stephen Harper or John A. Macdonald? No, it was the indigenous community who objected to the depiction of this sacred uh, ceremony as one that would encourage and laugh at, because there's like a couple dozen Cree women depicted who are laughing at and encouraging this act. And it was apparently many voices uh, amongst the indigenous community who were appalled by this. And um, Monkman apologized. I'll lay this out a little bit more so we can actually, you know, it's just you and me talking today, Chris, and obviously, yeah. you know, some other voices would be welcome in, in discussing this, but I'll, I'll read some quotes that the press picked up on. This is Lindsay Nixon, who is a Cree Métis 
Salto art historian and an editor of Canadian Art Magazine, they said, I think the fact that there was a depiction of sexual violence and that I had to witness that was very intense and that it was done in such a disrespectful manner in front of our aunties and grandmothers who are so powerful and should be respected. And uh, this part was interesting to me. A lot of the discussion on Indigenous Twitter and Facebook centered around how Monkman is thought of as like an artist who's like for white viewers. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, there's so many layers to this, right? But that I think that's often, we want, I think, as, as white folk, we want art that is kind of easily digestible and that makes us feel like, well, there, is, there are success stories coming out of indigenous communities, but often it's difficult for us to distinguish how we might perceive the work versus how the work might be perceived within, and you know, I mean, we say Indigenous Canada, but there's so, I mean, there's so many dozens of communities and there's such a diversity of opinion, but it's easy for us to lose that perspective that we would see it in a totally different way. I mean, Joseph Boyden is a great example. Like we so wanted there to be a voice of an Indigenous author, you know, who was for reconciliation and had these books that were so fun for us to read. And then as it turns out, it was just kind of bullshit. Like it was just sort of our own white liberal guilt or whatever uh, manifesting itself in a pretty harmful way to actual indigenous authors and artists. The Boyden comparison is interesting. Like, I don't think anyone's making the same claims about Monkman, except for the fact that they're both. No, no, Monkman is Monkman is indigenous and he's, you know, he's not pretending to, 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 but I mean, this is, this is sexual violence. And obviously with the, the missing and murdered indigenous women's inquiry, and a lot of what we've learned over the last 10, 20, 30 years and, and kind of brushed aside, you know, sexual violence, even going as far back as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, sexual violence is, is a tool of the state used systemically against indigenous uh, children and women. And, and so this is a very, very powerful and provocative symbol. And for people who have gone through, and I have my own like history with, with sexual violence, um, it is a lot to look at and it is a lot to process and the sort of a line between okay this is shocking and it forces us to think about these larger issues versus okay this is just shocking for the sake of it being shocking and it and it triggers me as, as a survivor uh as you know i think alicia elliott the mohawk uh, author uh, wrote on, on twitter just basically that it's triggering and it feels gratuitous but that's a very fine line to walk and you know even the most successful artists are going to make mistakes. And it looks like, I think Kent Monkman at least acknowledges that he really maybe didn't handle this very well. Yeah. And, and to continue telling the story of how this played out, LaPresse quoted uh, Wabanan Anaongakwe of Niagara Falls, who's Anishinaabe, saying that the worst aspect of this work is to stage the sexual assault of a person in a ceremonial space with uh, his traditional objects and his feathers. If that represents who we are, then we don't deserve to survive. Wow. Uh, this is a horror. This kind of revenge is a white fantasy. There were other voices. There's not uniformity here. Uh, the Cree and mixed race writer, uh, La Presse calls Virginia Pesamapeo Bordelot a, a mixed race writer. That might be a Google Translate issue. I don't know. Uh, no, no. I think I think often it's just the, the <laughs> frank own way of of addressing some of these issues is a little clumsier than than yeah. Translated in English. All right. Who received the Artist of the Year award in Abitibi? Abitibi. Abitibi, 
uh, on Tuesday, believes that the provocative style of Monkman is a choice to awaken the spirits to indigenous realities that the majority prefers to ignore. It is a strong image to denounce the abuses that First Nations women still suffer and also to denounce the social inequalities that no one can challenge. And then Monkman himself uh, apologized. As a cisgendered, two-spirit Cree man, I have always wished to prioritize the safety and well-being of non-binary, trans, two-spirit, and women viewers. I see that with this work, I failed. I wish for my work to resist the colonial traumas inflicted upon my own family and so many other generations, not to perpetuate harm. I take full responsibility for the impact this work has had on the community. I will take this into account and think carefully before creating new works. With love and respect, Kent Monkman. So Monkman posted this to social media. Uh, it's still up on his Instagram. It's hard to tell from his apology if this painting is uh, going to see the light of day. Do you apologize for a painting and then, you know, show it in a gallery? Uh, you know, and I, I actually kind of worry that this painting is going to be, you know, disappeared after this. Okay, I want to make a case for bad art. I like Monkman's work because it's both beautifully rendered, as you say, and it's, it's you know, evocative of these kind of glorified classical renditions of colonial, you know, like the fine masterworks. And they're often seen of, you know, white man's burden of, you know, the formation of Canada in that style. He, he depicts these other scenes. And sometimes it's very disturbing. But I think that one sometimes overlooked aspect of his work is just that it's it's like tacky as hell and it's overblown and it, it's about as subtle as a mallet. And he just shows these things in such stark, vivid like, yes, you could look at that, and, and I'm not seeing this from an Indigenous perspective or from the perspective of a sexual assault survivor, and just be like, that is horrific and offensive, and that's a valid point of view. But it also is is just like, it's, I'm not an art critic. I'm having trouble. Yeah, it's, it's writing about art, as someone has once told me, is like tap dancing about architecture. There's just no, like, one does not have anything to do with the other. It's very difficult to describe what you're seeing. I, I, I know what you mean. It's It's not, I mean... It's almost like a Cornelius Krieghoff painting, you know, it's, 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 it is, it is tacky. And I think that's part of the, the charm and the design is to sort of evoke those, the, the sort of classical form that I guess by modern standards uh, or contemporary standards is kind of almost campy. And as you said, it's yeah. as subtle as a, a mallet. You know, from my perspective, this is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. This isn't some rarefied thing for art people. And it's not some internal, uh, like it, th this is like, it's art that makes people mad. It's art that makes people laugh. It's art that is getting people talking. It's art that no one can make up their mind about if it should be censored, you know, like if, yeah. if it should be hidden away forever. And to my like understanding and approach to art, like that's so refreshing that a painter could still do that in 2020, that a, that a Canadian indigenous painter could still could stir up this and evoke those kinds of emotions is what we're supposed to be doing. And I'm just trying to balance that with like that itself is coming from a certain kind of Western tradition of like, oh, who is the enfant terrible? Who is the Duchamp with the fountain who's pissing off the squares of the art world? And like, you know, yeah. is that as important as somebody saying, you know, this is either sacrilegious or disrespectful? But I also just think back on like the Jewish community hated Mordecai Richler, you know, like you're not supposed to be taking scenes of the sacred and mixing them with the profane or mixing them with, with political commentary and, and juxtaposing those. Like, isn't that the whole pursuit? It is. And I think that's what makes this conversation so difficult is that great art is, is supposed to make us feel uncomfortable and great art is supposed to be transgressive. But to sort of speak to your point, you know, you saw it and after having heard about it, you saw it and, and you laughed. I saw it and was mortified. Like it really, it hits you 
you see this and, and I just don't see the community that I have experienced and I've worked my first job as a reporter was in a Mohawk community. And for the past 10 years, I've been in communities across Quebec. Uh, and it's not what I've seen and experienced. Just the idea of revenge and the idea of retribution is not necessarily my experience of, of how the community deals with colonial violence and sexual violence in particular. But, you know, I, I again, we, we are talking about it. I don't, you know, but I certainly hear the, the voices of people who are saying this is sexual violence and it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult and triggering thing. Chris, in uh, La Belle Provence, the legislators have a funny habit of just decrying the media with full-throated denunciation. And your newspaper is the latest target. Can you take me through what the premier, uh, what his beef is with your newspaper? Well, first of all, I'm happy that he has a beef with our newspaper because it means that our newspaper still exists, which is never a certain thing in these uncertain times. So essentially, Montreal and well, Quebec and Montreal in particular are at the center of the, the COVID crisis. Thousands of deaths come from the city. And uh, at the very beginning of the crisis, or maybe a few weeks in, uh, our health reporter, and yeah, we still have a beat health reporter, which is a small miracle for a, for a paper like the Montreal Gazette in, in this day and age. Our health reporter, Aaron Derfell, uh, you know, managed to break a story about some, some pretty awful abuses and misreported death statistics coming out of an elder care facility. That propelled him into the national conversation. We would say national in Quebec because we're a nation within a nation within a nation. So Aaron uh, began uh, writing these Twitter threads every day, kind of explaining his analysis based on you know 20 years of health reporting and his sources inside the government or inside these hospitals. He would publish these Twitter threads every day about you know what he what his take is or what what his reading is on the latest statistics. To give you an idea, he went from having maybe three followers on Twitter to you know maybe 12 or 13,000 now. So it caught on. And that might not seem like a lot, but all of the sort of important people in Montreal and, and Quebec are following his work and are hanging on his every word. And, and Aaron has become a sort of journalism folk hero. I, I've worked with him for 10 years. I've known Aaron. He was my teacher in college and, and he's a friend of mine. And I'm, I'm happy to see him thriving here. But his, his work caught the attention of the premier, François Legault. And um, about a week ago, I remember I was, I was like kind of not motivated to go to work. And then I, I fire up Twitter and see that uh, Monsieur Legault had been asked about a poll that found that Anglophones are disproportionately more worried about uh, COVID-19 than Francophones. And the, the premier said it's probably in part because of the media. I think uh, the journalists, uh, you have... Uh a responsibility. I like to read certain journalists of the Gazette, the specialist in health. Sometimes I really disagree with him. Um, it's a question of information, so I'm trying to do my best in French and in English, so I don't see why the result is not the same for Francophones and Anglophones. I guess you Maybe the Gazette has a certain responsibility. And uh, when asked what he meant by that, he said specifically the Montreal Gazette and specifically Aaron something, I don't know his last name, whatever. Aaron something. Uh, yeah. He's on Twitter about uh, 25 times a day. Yeah. He didn't like that Aaron was questioning 
uh, Legault's reopening of, of Quebec, which was then postponed. He didn't like that Aaron was suggesting that Legault might not have the most accurate statistics on, on testing, which was later found to be true. I don't think he really enjoyed the, the degree of, of scrutiny that everyone who knows Aaron knows that he will put you under, whether you're the, whether you're the provincial government or you know, whether you took his lunch order. He's a stickler, and, and I don't think Francois Legault appreciated that. And the message he sent definitely resonates with his base, which is basically all of Quebec except Montreal. And like the Gazette has been, and this is a post-media paper, so it's not easy for me to say, <laughs> the Gazette has been covering itself in glory through the pan- this pandemic. I mean, we know about the, these horrific abuses in long-term care because of the Gazette's work, right? Like like this is uh, to be taking a shot at the Gazette and saying that the, that the Gazette has a certain like in particular, the Montreal Gazette has a certain responsibility for what exactly? Like uh, for the fact that English speakers in Quebec are more worried about coronavirus? There's a few things that the, the premier got wrong here. One, English people are probably more disproportionately more worried about it because disproportionately English people live in Montreal, which is at the epicenter. Like if you were to compare Montreal and Laval statistically, to the rest of Quebec, it's the rest of Quebec with deaths and, and COVID cases. It, it's another world altogether. Montreal is it, per capita would be, I think, if, if Montreal were a country in Laval, like Montreal and Laval were a country, we'd probably be, I think, five or six on, on death toll per 100,000 or however it's, that's being measured. So, so there are two realities and Anglophones, the vast majority of the Anglophone community lives in the Montreal region. So it, it stands to reason that we would be more worried. And I think the Blaming the paper is a, is a badge of honor, and, and it does show that I think, you know, a lot of a lot of papers have investigative units, like larger papers have investigative units, and, and at the Gazette we have Aaron, and and there used to be two health reporters, one one took a buyout, and Aaron is Aaron's been in the game for twenty years. I was writing down some of the stories he's he's broken in the past few years, and and he has if a pin drops at an MUHC hospital, uh, Aaron Aaron knows where it fell and and who dropped it. I mean he. He was nominated for uh, an NNA in 2019 because because of how he linked, you know, cuts in in hospital security to to an assault and and mere killing of a nurse on, on one of the wards, and that makes Aaron a force to be reckoned with. And I think what we've all known in Montreal and at the Gazette now the premier knows it, which is that you know you can't really get anything by this guy, and it it can be really frustrating. And I think what Legault said about the Montreal Gazette plays into a larger dynamic of sort of Montreal and specifically non-Francophone Montreal versus the rest of Quebec. And it's unfortunate because we saw a lot of Francophone journalists uh, sort of universally come to Aaron's defense, whether it was in Le Devoir or Le Journal de Montréal or La Presse or Radio-Canada, like people uh, jumped to his defense. And I, I, I think they're, I mean, you, you know, there's nothing us journalists like more than, a, than talking about ourselves. So... He did sort of, you know, it did serve to spark that conversation. Yeah, he inspired some solidarity amongst the press across uh, language barriers. You know, Chris, you bring up a pretty reasonable explanation. It's not the Gazette's fault that Anglophones are more concerned than COVID-19. The reason why is because, as you say, uh, Anglophones live in a densely populated urban area. Like, is Quebec City, by that logic, they would also be as concerned as Montrealers about COVID-19. But I wonder if we can't add to that some broad ethnic generalizations. Come on, is this really just the fact that Montreal is a majority Anglophone? You're asking me to just eat a bunch of shit for my people here. No, no, I, I mean, look, I, 
Quebec City is not Montreal. Like Quebec City, we oh man, this is, I'm playing into like a really bad dynamic here, but we would say Quebec City is basically a big village. Like like it's it's not it doesn't have the same level of, of a dense population, and and their you know their their infection rates aren't even close to what they are in, in Montreal uh, because of how connected we are. Like there's there is an international airport, and I'm you know in Quebec City, but I'm putting that in like scare quotes. It's not the same as, as, as in Montreal. Some of the earliest places to have outbreaks were in the Anglophone neighborhoods. But yeah, no, culturally, it's, it's weird because we are, I think, more, maybe more cynical. We are kind of like shaking our fists maybe more often than, than, than Francophones are, specifically at the government, specifically at this government. I think there's, there's a real um, clash of cultures here. The Coalition Avenir Quebec is not, you know, they, they have one elected member in Montreal. They don't have a huge presence in the Anglophone community. No, culturally, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it definitely plays up to the sort of that stereotype of Montrealers as having like being especially disdainful of, of a Francophone led party. But I don't know, man. I'm kind of rambling here because I really don't want to get in trouble with my colleagues and friends. I, I, that's okay. I think I've already got you there. If I understand you correctly, uh, Quebec City is a bunch of country bumpkins. And uh, there, there might be something to the idea that, like, I think that Anglo Montrealers are are very critical and suspicious of, of the government's rush to open things back up. And I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see some polling of Francophone Montrealers. Like, are they more eager to hit the patios and open up the schools? Like, where, 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 where does the support lie? I think universally, I think universally, Montrealers are... I mean, nobody's nobody's having fun in this kind of like joyless, sexless existence that is confinement. But really, it plays to the dynamic of Montreal versus the rest of Quebec. And and you know, there there was a piece in in one of the Quebecor papers that was basically we should quarantine Montreal from the rest of Quebec, which is basically like you know solidarity and, and until it becomes inconvenient. And there was another piece that basically said Montreal, Montreal should be placed under um, under third party management because the crisis is so bad. When of course the irony is that like the crisis is bad in provincially run facilities. Like it's not this is not a Montreal thing, but to a lot of people, Montreal is being othered. You know, mo- you know Montreal with its multiculturalism and its access to the outside world and its anglophones is is harming the rest of Quebec. I think that's a minority within the province, and it's a very loud minority. But but the, that is a voice that unfortunately has a bit of a foothold, and and obviously the, the reality is much more nuanced. You know, the majority of francophones, I'd say, are also, especially in Montreal, are also worried about about reopening. We're all you know, every yeah. time someone sneezes, I'm paranoid. Well, I, I guess I should, before we move on, congratulate you for uh, inspiring the premier's ire, and I hope it's helped subscription numbers during this time. Me too, man. Me too. I like, I like paying rent on the first of every month. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does 
BetterHelp. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Chris, it's your first time co-hosting Shortcuts, but uh, maybe you know that we note things duly, and it's your turn to do just that. What do you have for us? It is a column by uh, my friend Pojolnay, a columnist at La Presse, who believes I should be in prison, which is probably fair. Uh, And it is called Dying Has Gotten Difficult. And he basically outlines how, uh, well, in in a time where so many of us are dying from uh, COVID-19, death has become almost casual. There's just so much of it, and yet we don't really uh, experience it collectively. It has become almost banal. As he says, there are measures in place for family members to visit uh, the dying in hospitals, but even those are, are quite limited, and the grief that people you know, would normally experience collectively is, is, has become a very individual, personal, uh, sterile thing. And he's, he's, he's mourning this. And I, I, you know, the, the details are a little bit chilling. People who die of, of COVID you know, are not embalmed. Family members can't witness the cremation. There isn't maybe the sense of closure that we would, you know, we would normally get pre-COVID. And so I think what this experience has shown us is that we, you know, we are we are increasingly detached from this. We should sort of ship our elderly off to these long-term care facilities. Uh, they die and we sort of forget about them. So from a guy who thinks I should be in jail, I really do appreciate his him him driving that point home that we really we really should be taking more time to to think about our dead and our dying. And so merci beaucoup pour journée. Why does he think you should be in jail? We covered the 2014 provincial campaign together. I, I believe I may have had a drinking problem at the time and I think uh, took him on a piggyback ride where both or one of us ended up in a ditch. I don't remember. It was a bit of a blurry night. Duly noted. I'm going to duly note a Canada dispatch published by the New York Times. Good source for all of my Canada news. This is uh, from the person who, at least up until recently, was running the the Canada desk, the Canada, the the chief of the Canada Bureau. Uh, I'm not sure what the actual title is for Catherine Porter at the New York Times now. I've heard conflicting things. But nevertheless, Catherine Porter is telling the New York Times reader about what is happening in Canada. In fact, what's happening in the city in which I live. And what she wrote was, the Toronto was obeying social distance rules. Then came adorable baby foxes. 
I was aware. I was aware that there were baby foxes, um, a family of foxes living uh, in the the beaches neighborhood or the beach. They're called kits. The babies were called kits. Oh, okay. What I was unaware of was that, according to Catherine Porter, for a few weeks, starting in April, it seemed as if all anyone was talking about, other than the virus, were the foxes. Mom, dad, and four kits. There you are. You're right. Or was it five? No one was really sure. And, I mean, this is a minor thing. And I, I you know, a lovely little story about these baby foxes that uh, I sure was uh, eager to catch a glimpse of. But the fact that nobody was talking about, I mean, I guess that's that's hyperbole. That's how we tell stories. Oh, it's all anyone was talking about. Doesn't mean that that's all anyone was talking about. But it was just like reading a certain depiction of Toronto. And it was important for the framing that this was, everybody was, you know, it's, 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 it's what Americans might think of mild-mannered Canadians. We were uh, complying with the rules. But then we're also a people of wilderness creatures. And once the baby foxes were around, we threw the rules out and, you know, we all have just been flagrantly violating the rules just to catch a glimpse of these foxes. And I recalled, of course, that Catherine Porter is the same reporter who said that, you know, as, as Canadians call it, the day that cannabis became legal nationwide, Sea Day is what we called it, to which Canadians uh, coast to coast said, I've never heard anyone use that term <laughs> ever. So I want to note this, Chris, not to dunk on Catherine Porter, you know. Please do, though. I, I do appreciate No, no, that. no. She's doing us a great service. I think that everybody should experience what it is like to be misrepresented by a journalist. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Who yeah. is turning you into some cartoon character for, like, you know, foreign gawkers who are- Look, if I've, I've been guilty of that in the in the past, I mean, not- uh, yeah, for sure, misrepresenting, but I, I think I've I've projected a lot of resentment onto you because I felt like you know you didn't you didn't get Quebec and it really upset me. But I've gotten over it. Well, now I know how you feel because you know I am only useful occasionally uh, as as a cartoon character to Catherine Porter's readership, I suppose. So every now and then, as a Torontonian, I'm I'm a guy who was just talking about foxes for three weeks and who's... Uh, We're simple people, us Canadians. Yeah. I was following the rules, but then these cute little furry... You know, and, and it doesn't matter. There are greater injuries out there, but it's just, uh, you know, and, and even my irritation and other people's irritation at this is kind of like, well, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> you know, nobody really wants to hear you say that you're more complicated or that's reductive. Just show us the pictures of the foxes. So... Uh, thank you, Catherine Porter. But are they cute? Oh, they're adorable. Okay. Duly noted. Chris, the final thing I want to talk about today is something that came to my attention when I got an email from the group Honest Reporting Canada. All caps, SUCCESS! Radio Canada deletes article blaming Israel for Gaza's plight in fighting coronavirus. And Honest Reporting is an advocacy group that puts pressure on the press when they believe that Israel is being maligned or misrepresented. So they've got like, I don't know, like 45,000 supporters who send the money and they, they monitor the press. And anytime they feel like anti-Israel sentiment is out there, they respond. And there are, there are plenty of groups out there who do that on behalf of different uh, special interests. But this was a curious case. It was not all that unique that they would have a problem with an article. And the article that they objected to was a Radio Canada piece the headline was COVID-19, Gaza, double confinement. It was a story in which uh, the reporter Kamel Buzebajan, apologies if I'm mispronouncing their name, writes about what is happening in Gaza under the pandemic. And the article basically quotes and paraphrases uh, two Gazans who are talking about uh, the situation in Gaza 
and the difficulties in getting support and aid, which I'm not, I have not done any independent research into what exactly is happening in Gaza or uh, who's to blame for it. But this is a story that just basically presents two different Gazans as to what they say uh, is happening and the fact that uh, Israel is culpable. And Honest Reporting objected to this and sent a letter to the ombudsman of Radio Canada. There's a different ombudsman for Radio Canada for the French service than for CBC. And they published their letter of complaint, which claims to highlight 10 things that were wrong. And they say there's factual errors with this. In my view, that is how you should, you know, if there's factual errors that malign your interests or whatever interests you represent, then certainly complain. But in fact, this list of 10 errors was not a list of 10 errors. It was a counter argument. It was essentially nine of the points were simply saying it's not, in fact, Israel that's to blame. It's Hamas. It's the governance in Gaza that's to blame. It was, it was basically presenting the other side of the story. The only point that I think was actually about the journalism was point number three, which was that it was an imbalanced story. It contained voices of Gazans, but it didn't contain the other side of the story. And this is all like pretty regular, normal stuff up to this point. What's weird, Chris, is how CBC responded. CBC unpublished the article in response. CBC just removed it. You get a 404, no article here. Yeah, you guys had to dig out the archives, to, to the internet archives to find it, right? Yeah, we had to dig it up from the Wayback Machine. And then separately on a different page, like usually if you do something like that, you put your reason for removing it on the page that used to be the article. Instead, somewhere else, Radio Canada said that they withdrew the article due to deficiencies in terms of balance. Fair enough. Uh, perhaps the article did lack balance. Our decision is also based on the publication of new information on the situation in Gaza. They do not tell you what that new information is. And then comically, they say, we regret the confusion this may have caused. I'm very confused because of the removal and because of this um, unspoken new information. Why this is weird, Chris, is that the CBC explicitly doesn't do things like this. The office of the CBC Ombudsman, there's a page, like a frequently asked questions type page. Can you remove a story from the CBC website? CBC says, it is CBC policy not to remove or alter archived stories other than in the most exceptional circumstances. If a story is inaccurate, we will correct it and we will advise readers that we have changed it. If relevant new information emerges, we will update or write a follow-up. But once published, the story is a matter of public record. To simply remove it or part of it from the archive would take us into rather treacherous waters. A separate CBC Radio Canada document, like this is specific to Radio Canada as well, to selectively alter or remove stories is a form of censorship, says Radio Canada, altering the past, and news organizations pretty consistently decline to do so. So now I think the legitimate question is, well, what was exceptional about this circumstance that justified what you yourself call a form of censorship and an altering of the public record? What do you think? Why was this article removed? I mean, first of all, thank you. The first show I co-host, you know, we go from indigenous issues and, and sexual violence to Anglo, Francophone, Quebec, and now we're on Gaza and Israel. So, <laughs> holy moly. Welcome to my mentions. I mean, it's not like Gazan voices uh, have run amok in the mainstream media and it's, you know, they, they're always quoted and they're distorting our, our perspective of what's happening on the ground. I did read the article and yeah, some, some quotes from Israeli officials uh, would have been helpful, but I don't see what was so, I mean, like the thing that upsets me here is that, you know, if there were some reporting errors or if someone 
messed up, then it's been scrubbed from the internet, then we, you know, there, I think there were some really legitimate questions being asked, you know, how does the blockade affect COVID in Gaza and how, how should a pandemic affect this sort of a conflict and what are the conditions like on the ground? And now instead of having that conversation, it's just gone. And I have no idea why. I think I kind of know why. And I think it's because these groups, Honest Reporting and CIGA, CIGA, the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, they are very good at what they do. They are very good and they're aggressive at monitoring the media and exerting pressure on the media. And I want to say, like, first of all, as mentioned before, any group can do this. Like, there's nothing wrong with any group saying, look, we have a point of view. We have certain things we've determined to be our politics and our interests. And when the media is unfair to our interests, we're going to push back using whatever whatever legitimate methods are available. That is fine. And I think that, especially with honest reporting, they do so doggedly. And I know a lot of uh, journalists feel like, wow, overwhelmed by the attention that these groups give and, and, you know, singled out at times. They will go after a specific reporter. What I will fault them for, in their criticism of this reporter, they attribute to the reporter claims that were actually made by somebody quoted in the article. And they're saying that this reporter is saying that, uh, you know, military aid has been blocked to Gazans. The reporter never said that. So they'll overstate their case in order to exert pressure on the CBC ombudsman. And, you know, and I know from working at the CBC that CBC, when they have these groups uh, pushing down on them, they can buckle and fold. And obviously somebody acted very cowardly and actually against CBC policy here. And I think that these groups are genuine in their feeling that they're doing so on behalf of Israel. Uh, and I think that the, the feeling amongst these groups, and I've, I know people uh, who work for these groups, they feel that, that they're doing this on behalf of the Jewish people. And I want to say, stop helping. Because the outcome of this is a widespread feeling that Jews have an undue influence over the media. And even here, look at it. Here's Radio Canada going against their own rules and disappearing, censoring an article because some Jewish lobby group bullied them into doing it. And and who's pulling the strings behind, you know, what, what calls were made. None of that happened. There's no big conspiracy here. There is a well-funded group that has people monitoring the media and pushing the ombudsman really hard. And, you know, by doing so, they are actually working against their purpose. They're actually supporting and perpetuating the idea that Jews have some kind of control or conspiracy or some kind of undue influence on the media. That is not the case. The truth, I believe, is just that they are relentlessly doing what a lot of other groups do. They do it particularly well, and I'd like them to stop. I'm not touching this one. Catholic alarm bells are going off in my body. (laughs) But I will say that if your goal is to get people who are on the fence to come to your side, this, no, this just, I think, would just entrench people in the opposite view and in the opposite camp. But again, if anybody asks, I wasn't here. Honest reporting, as we say, it's bad for the Jews. It's bad for the Jews. Oh, Jesus. That is your Canada Land Shortcuts. It has never been easier to support us. Please do so. Get ad-free versions of this show. Click on the link in your show notes. Go to canadalandshow.com slash join. It's five bucks Canadian a month. You can email me about the show. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send in. Bring it on. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. We're also on Instagram at CanadaLandShow. Christopher, where can people find you? You know, at my apartment right now, I could use some company. But on Twitter, at Tito Curtis, so that's T-I-T-O-C-U-R-T-I-S. Please follow me. I need your love. 
Tito Curtis, do it. Our website is canadalandshow.com. This week, there is a new episode of Oppo. You should listen to this interview with Joanna Chu of the Toronto Star out in Vancouver. It is fascinating. And there's a new episode of Commons, which is uh, not even an option. This is obligatory, mandatory listening. Go listen to Commons this week. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Syndication is by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.